Correction. We're back, back, back again, y'all. So are y'all ready for a new episode on Word on the Street? For those of you who are new to the podcast, this space is hosted by the Office of Multicultural Learning at Santa Clara University in the Bay Area of California to discuss contemporary social issues and other trending topics. My name is Burnell Neville. I use he, him, his pronouns, and I serve as the assistant director in the Office of Multicultural Learning, which includes the Rainbow Resource Center. And I'm joined by a phenomenal co-host. Hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Joanna Thompson, director of the Office for Multicultural Learning, which also includes the Rainbow Resource Center. And my pronouns are she, her, hers, or they, them, theirs. You know, as we're recording this podcast and really thinking through things, as of November 17th, which was today, the County of Santa Clara moved to the purple tier or tier one, which is the most restrictive of daily functions out here in the Bay Area. And given the fact that SCU is moving towards this more hybrid model of instruction for the winter quarter, the difference between in-person and virtual instruction are quite topical for our campus. Now, since neither Joanna nor myself are experts on accessibility accommodations nor bioethics, we invited some special guests into this conversation. The conversation you're about to listen to is part one of a two-part series recorded with staff from the Office of Accessible Education here at SCU. It should be noted this conversation took place on November 5th, keep that in mind as things are constantly shifting and changing with this pandemic. We learned a lot throughout this episode and had a really great time recording it with our friends here at Santa Clara University. And we hope that you learn a lot and also enjoy the episode. So here it goes. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this new episode of Word on the Street. Uh, we are joined by some awesome, amazing colleagues from the Office of Accessible Education who are going to introduce themselves right now. Hi, everybody. My name is Maud. I am the director for the, Dis um, for the Office of Accessible Education, previously known as the Disability Resources Office on campus. Hi, my name is Kara Catavera, and I'm the associate director of the Office of Accessible Education. Thank you so much, Maud and Kara. Like, I, ugh, I miss you all both so dearly. I know I see you all in our Saturday in front of but that's not enough time. If y'all don't know Maud and Kara, get to know them. They're wonderful people, Santa Clara students. You definitely should check out their office. They're great resources for all of us. So um, we've gathered Maud and Kara here today to talk about this idea of virtual education versus in-person education with us being X month into pandemic. I've lost track. I don't even know what year it is anymore half the time. Um, some questions around virtual engagement versus in-person engagement are very topical for everybody, but given the expertise that Maude and Kara have in terms of accessible education, what that looks like, we thought it might be awesome to sit down and talk a little bit about from their expertise and their perspective, what this looks like for them. So to get us started for our first question, uh, so Kara and Maude, from your perspective, um, what have virtual accommodations for students look like in this virtual format that we find ourselves in? For, um... Well, our students registered with our office, what we are seeing is that we are getting an increased number of students registering with the Office of Accessible Education, which we're going to be referring to as OAE for short, <laughs> since it's a really long name. Um, and we are seeing that a lot of the accommodation requests that are coming in is for um, managing their course loads. So some students may be looking to see if they can take less classes than they typically take. And we we'll also see some students coming in for um, testing accommodations um, registered with our office. I would say some of our current students are also requesting additional accommodations. Maybe they received um, testing accommodations in the past, but they need a little bit more in the online environment because they're not quite able to manage 
everything in the same way that they were when they were in person with an instructor in our testing center. There's just a lot more to manage when they're um, in their own environment taking exams at home. And I wonder, since we've been virtual for so long now, I mean, thinking back to March when everything first started, has there been an increase in accommodations or have they stayed pretty steady or now that we're in a new quarter or are there like what what have the trends looked like over this like a short period of time? I would say that from a documentation review, it really depends on when we are looking at it. So initially when we went into shelter in place and we didn't know whether or not we were going to get back on campus for the fall, we did see an increase in particular categories such as housing accommodations. But once the university made the announcement, that dropped because students are staying at home. So it really depends on exactly when we're looking at it and what that need um, may be. So for fall right now, it's midterm. So we're seeing a lot of students that are dealing with the stress of being at home and also um, having to manage their classes for some students that struggle with executive functioning. So that's time management and um, trying to figure that out. They might be coming back for, to our office asking what additional services can you guys offer me? And I just learned a new word, executive functioning. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> so it's good to know what that means now. <laughs> these, these moments are just learning for the listeners. They're also moments of learning for us. And mm -hmm. you, you all, Karamah, you unpack this a little bit, but as you think about the types of accommodations that you um, gave to students before pandemic, um, how does that um, differ um, to the ones that you've been offering virtually? Are there still um, the same ones in place you're doing plus some? Are they, are they a totally different set of accommodations you're offering now in person? Or excuse me, in virtual set phase? I would say not necessarily. What we are seeing are there are students that are registered with our office for learning disabilities that may not be trying to get accommodation for perhaps because they also have a vision related disability that when they were on campus, that wasn't necessarily a good challenge for them, but now it is. So it really, I would say we see um, those trends happening and students that may have migraine that wasn't registered with our office, but now because they are online, they are spending quite a lot of time in front of the computer seeking additional services. I think um, also related to just the pandemic, there's a lot more psychological disorders that are underlying and coming up for students. And so that's impacting um, them personally. And that of course creeps into their academics too. And so um, sitting down to take an exam in a regular world, quote unquote regular, obviously, <laughs> um, is very different than taking an exam in this current environment that we're living in. And so um, we're seeing students make requests based on those. And I wonder, I mean, I know that OEE, obviously being a part of the Office of Student Life, and for our listeners, if you don't know that, now you know, um, that it's predominantly accommodations for students, but staff and faculty, um, you know, if they have these types of needs, is there an OAE equivalent or would they go to you? How would they be able to get support? Staff and faculty work directly with HR. So HR would be the one to coordinate any accommodation services. And I, I don't know their processes, so, but that would be the first step for faculty and staff. And also um, in thinking about those accommodations with the students while in a virtual space, um, what does that look like for your office in terms of actually getting that 
the students what they need to be successful here because it's different when we're in person on campus they can actually physically come by your office talk to people get things managed but how do you go about like let's say a student needs a certain type of um, computer software to read their um, their textbooks how do you go about getting that to the student if they're not physically with us on campus so for for our student population, we have very low number of students with sensory impairments registered with our office. So sensory impairments are students with severe vision impairments or um, students that are deaf and hard of hearing. So we have very low numbers of students with sensory impairments. But for students that need e-text, typically the first step would be the students would look for the book on Amazon or a different um, places where they can purchase the book. And if it's not available as um, an e-text, that's when we work with the publisher to get that material available for the students. Sometimes we get really lucky, sometimes we don't. But um, from my perspective, and I will let Kara speak on it, we haven't really experienced any challenges when it comes to the implementation of accommodation because a lot of the accommodations are very common accommodation that can be implemented online. So, I say this to say that, you know, in March, when our faculty members had to drastically change the format of their classes, you expect to have a lot more question, how do I figure this out? But I think that once they um, recognize, okay, we're gonna be online and I have students that are going to need accessible content in my classes, we haven't had many concern when it comes to implementation of accommodation online. But I think that's because of the population that OAE serve and the nature of SCU as a campus. We have very low numbers of sensory impairments on our campus. And I would say that some of uh, implementing some of the accommodations has been much quicker than it was in the past, where at times it would take a lot longer to really communicate what we need to the instructors and make sure that everything is in place and that the students are requesting their accommodations in a timely manner. Now it's literally pressing a button, sending over that email to the instructor and the student reaching out. Now, of course, sometimes the instructor needs a little more time to process those accommodations requests, but I would say by and large, that's happening much more quick, quickly where it might've taken three days before now is happening sometimes the same day. Um, and that's giving credit to the instructors really because they're just they're just bang, you know they're banging it out as fast as they can to support the students too. So that's been I think a positive thing. Shout out to SCU faculty and instructors and adjunct lecturers. Yeah. And that's awesome to hear that we pivoted so seamlessly because you never know, especially things that kind of, we got thrown into this world. You never know how that might have been um, for our students and their experiences engaging with the content. Um, and I know both of you referenced um, obviously the context of what things look like here at SCU and how we've navigated certain things, how our students and faculty and staff have pivoted. Um, but do you, can y'all give us more context of maybe what have trends look like in this accommodation space um, at a, navigated these things? I can't really speak around the country, but for some of the institutions that we work closely with, I would say that they see similar trends when it comes to their um, accommodations requests, such as students spending more time with um, managing their course load, students that didn't initially request an accommodation for a specific disability now coming in and requesting it. So we are, they are seeing the same trend that we are seeing. And when I mean um, the institution we work closely with, I'm talking about peer institutions that reflect um, Santa Clara population. I think we're in a unique situation where we're still online currently. And so there's a lot of colleges who are dealing with different types of accommodation needs, like how to 
have a testing center in an environment where there's a pandemic and people are um, potentially getting ill, right? So, and cleaning that space and how are you gonna put people together? And so we, you know, that's something that we've begin to, begun to think about, but um, you know, with the unknown for winter and for spring that we're not really able to iron out the details, but those are, every part of the country has a little bit different focus on what they're dealing with based on what the current environment is in that um, state or that city. And given that you mentioned, you know, the unknowns of winter and spring, knowing that it seems like we're moving into more of like a hybrid model, have you all thought about what that would look like for OAE if you had access to your office in Benson and like being able to provide these resources both virtually and in person? We started conversation around it, but there are because we don't know which way um, things may go yet, but we are planning early um, to make sure that if we do have access to our space and trying to figure out how can we best serve our students while also um, keeping in mind that we will have to serve them in a reduced way. Our capacity in our testing center, if we were to open, will will change drastically because of the fact that we'll have to create space between um, students. And we don't know what that might look like because um, typically around finals, we proctor anywhere from 1,000 to 1,500 um, exams during finals week. So we uh. do a lot of proctoring. So if that were to be cut in half or who knows, <laughs> We don't know. So we are thinking about what would that look like for us. And I think that I don't want to say we are lucky in the fall that we we are online. But um, since fall typically is our busiest quarter when it comes to testing, it might be, it might look different in the winter and the spring should we get back on, um, on campus. But yeah, we do a lot of exam proctoring. So who knows what that would look like if we were to get back to campus and having to create space in our testing center and also how would we manage that with um we don't do our testing in blocks like some institution it's actually we um the students might be scheduled to take an exam from 9 to 11 and at 11 somebody else take that spot so we wouldn't be able to do that in a covid world right now we would need to create space between that time to um clean the space make sure that they are ready to go and bring in another um, tester into that space so Oh, that's such a 2020 response. It's like, it depends. <laughs> We're planning for everything, <laughs> but ultimately we don't know who knows, but I mean, it's awesome that y'all are at least like thinking through what that might look like for your students so we can make sure as we all, as we all know, the four of us being uh, members of OSL, Office of Student Life, very much here to best serve the needs of the students and as safely and effectively as we can. So it's awesome that y'all are thinking about this. I know, um, so we focused a lot in this conversation thus far on this idea of what things have been like in this virtual space. Um, but we also, what parties were having this conversation because we're really trying to think through the, uh, this population of students, students with disabilities and how they navigate their environment, comparing, contrasting what it looks like when we're in person versus virtual, because given certain people's abilities, like things might be easier in a virtual space or things might be easier in an online space. We want to kind of take a, a few minutes to kind of talk, talk through both sides of this conversation. So when you think about from your perspective as an office, which you provide to your students, how you can best support them, um, 
again, I know things are very, very variant depending on someone's abilities and what they need and the accommodations that they require. Um, but what would you define as some of the benefits of being in an online space? I know Kara talked about a little bit of a, one benefit is like accommodations almost seem faster and be improving quicker in this environment. So what are some like benefits to what that you do in terms of being in a virtual online format? Well, let me clarify really quickly. Our process is not quicker in terms of approving accommodations, but the implementation of accommodations is often more quick um, in terms of once, once we've reviewed the documentation that when we inform the instructors, they're able to kind of pick up on what they need to do very quickly. So I don't yeah. want to misrepresent that in terms of our <laughs> workflow. No, thank you for that clarification. I apologize. Words, they're very important. <laughs> And so what, let, can you remind me of the question, no, the other question? Yeah, <laughs> no, of course. It's just, as you think about um, being in a virtual space, um, what would you define as some benefits um, to being virtual in terms of like a, a delivering accommodations, um, how students engage with content in a virtual space? Like what are some advantages to being in a virtual format? You actually, let me, let me say this. So um, since we've been online, all instructors have been recording their lectures. And so where that was originally an accommodation where a student, uh, if we had approved that, a student would be able to walk into the environment and record using their computer or whatever recording device they have. Now all instructors are doing that. So it's not a question that has to be asked of anybody and the students have access to that. So if they miss any information, they're able to review that and really fill in the blanks of the notes of what they might've missed during that conversation. So. Um, I think the information is more accessible than it ever was in person, but you trade off in-person relationships that you develop in those classrooms with instructors. And so with everything, there's a positive and a negative and you can see both sides of it. So um, that's just one example I can think of that all students are, are likely benefiting from, not just students in OAE. I definitely benefited from um, something being recorded here and there because like you sometimes miss things and it's just yeah. a lot going on. So it's nice to be able to revisit and kind of pick up content again. To build up on that, I'll say it for some students, it's easier to digest the materials because they are they are able to go back, like Kara said, and fill in the gaps. And also for um, some students, it's like, okay, well, I don't have to just sit there for an hour or two hours. I could just take what I need, take a break and come back and then um, digest the material and process it. Yeah, um, when prepping for this conversation, I had seen an article, um, I think it was Inside Higher Ed that produced the article that talked about one of the benefits of the outline of um, online education it was a very severe population of students with physical um, and mobility issues of no longer having to think about how to like get to the second floor of a building or to have to move around campus it can seamlessly transition from class to class by having to worry about physically navigating the campus environment um, so and that's something as someone who's temporary able-bodied is something I don't always have to think about in terms of my ability to walk around campus and how much of it might be a challenge for someone who might be in a wheelchair or have to use crutches and so I appreciate that article bringing up that perspective. Yeah, and I think that um, the other side to that though for students that may have um, a physical disability that impact their ability to write, if they don't have somebody at home to help them with that, that create a different challenge. So um, they are relying on software. Some students use dictation for it, but some students are not comfortable with dictation. And our office um, has assisted some students um, in some cases with um, that needed that assistance with proctoring. So yeah. Kind of, There's always uh, pros and cons too. 
to either um to either side um based on what you're looking for but for our students that have physical disabilities that may use um an assistive device such as a wheelchair to get around campus being on being online is somewhat of a great thing for them because it's like i don't got to worry about my class being accessible or students that need a specific type of chair they don't have to worry about that um furniture being accessible to them on campus and I wonder, I'm not sure if OAE has either like student assistants or just students who help out, or do you all have students who are able to still help other students in this process in, in the virtual format that we're in? We do have um, one student assistant right now for the fall quarter um, that is serving as our proctor and student assistant. So should the um, middle rises, we are able to, but she's on call. Um, so it's based on when we need her and um, she's able to provide that support for us. Well, props to that one student. I wish you all had more student assistance to help out. <laughs> and then um, we, we talked about a little, little bit, um, but thinking about this conversation on the flip side, um, the benefits that might be um, seen from your office and students you serve be, from being back on campus and being back in person again, um, what are some benefits of, of that type of education? I think for students that benefit from having um, a planned out schedule, knowing where, what they gotta do at this time, where do they go, it really helped them being on campus. And again, we're talking about students that perhaps um, struggle with executive functioning. Being online, I know that we have a couple of parents reaching out to us saying, are there resources available for students that uh, have executive functioning um, difficulties because they're finding it really hard to manage their time at home because they can be on, I don't know if Facebook is popular anymore, but um, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what the new, supposedly it's not, but that's okay. okay. So, you know, they can be on social media and um, they're finding it tough to manage their time because they're at home, they don't have the instructor in front of them. And in some classes you can't bring your computer and now you're learning online. It's a matter of just opening, I'm not encouraging this by the way, I just wanna put this out there. Um, it's a matter of opening up <laughs> your, um, your internet and going online and shopping for shoes while the instructor is talking because who's watching over your shoulder whereas in some classes you're not able to do that because you can't bring in your laptop so um i think that's the downside to it for those that struggle with executive functioning and being able to focus and concentrating on one thing at a time so we might have students that are like oh let me do this let me do that meanwhile the instructor is in the background of the Zoom talking, but they are on page three of shoes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's um that's that's a challenge. And in speaking about executive functioning skills, organizational skills is another part of that. And so if a student has figured out their system in an in-person environment and now they're transitioning to the online, every instructor has a different level of organization too. And what you know, and of course that's in true, that's true in person, but the student has to kind of not only manage their own difficulty with organization, but now integrate that difficulty into whatever the instructor is putting out. And it's been difficult to transition to this online uh, quarter. And so understandably, this whole process is challenging for everyone involved. And so I feel for the students who are, who are trying to deal with this, um, it, it's not easy. So uh, yeah, I feel for you guys. 
we've also heard from some students too that not every instructor is the same. Some of some instructors are having, you know, live Zoom classes and you can see people, you can see the instructor, you can see your peers. Some instructors are no live Zoom classes. Like you just read the material, you take your exam. And going back to what you had mentioned, Kara, as far as like the psychological effects, you know, not we're already kind of in isolation wherever we are, but having that lack of, you know, just seeing your peers on a Zoom in class for some of our students who are taking classes that are just completely asynchronous, it's it's been interesting to hear like how how much of that connection is so important. And even without, you know, those little moments during the day to just see somebody on a Zoom um, is really is really detrimental for a lot of our students and, and the way that they learn and how they're just feeling connected to our campus and to one another. And kind of going off that question, um, to what degree like have you, has your office like engaged with faculty around some of these conversations in terms of like, maybe suggestions on how to like accommodate students or how to pivot into like a virtual space? Or I know Kara, you've done some trainings around campus. Wasn't sure like how how much fac how faculty outreaches look like for your office over the past few months. We work with faculty on an individual basis. So meaning that as, cause not all faculty have students with disabilities in the courses. So as the need arises, they reach out to us. We do send out emails to faculty members to at the beginning of each quarter, letting them know um, exactly how to get in contact with OAE. Our website have information with um, for faculty, but how to implement certain common accommodation. But um, we do work with faculty on an individual Basis. We actually work with different departments on an individual basis based on what the students need may be. A students might be meeting with the advisor and they bring up that they have um, accommodation or perhaps they say I have a disability. So we having we are reaching across campus on, on a need basis to best support both students and faculty um, to make sure that the accommodation are implemented and that um, students are getting the services that they need. Thank you for sharing it. And one of our last questions we have, recognizing that we are the Office of Multicultural Learning, we're definitely interested in diversity, equity, inclusion from all aspects, but given the recent events of campus and the world, like race is very salient. Um, so as you think about um, this idea of um, accommodations and um, uh, the pandemic and virtual versus um, in-person education, um, and the decisions surrounding those, um, that, that decision exactly. Um, from your perspective, um, have you perceived like how this decision might disproportionately affect communities of color? I'm not sure. Um, I know that um, for, let me take a step back. Our, we have, we don't have a high number of students of color registered with our office. And I think that's just due to oftentimes how disabilities is perceived across um, minorities population. But um, as for the students that are registered with our office, we haven't really, we haven't heard much about some of the challenges that they all experience in, in the online classes. Some of them are doing really well. And just as with other students, they are experiencing some challenges, but nothing where it's to the point we can answer that question about how they might be disproportionate regarding the online or face-to-face um, -face classes. We appreciate hear, um, hearing that perspective again. We, we didn't know, we thought we wanted to just, just ask to see what's out there and, um, and how, how we're thinking about these um, factors when decisions are being made. Um, as we, oh, oh, go on Kara, sorry. Sorry, Bernal, all I was gonna say is that in, in thinking about this a little bit, um, 
I think it would take a step back from SCU. It would really go back to high school, middle school, elementary school when a lot of these students are identified. And so whether they're being identified as a student with a disability or as a student with a troubled past or a trouble, like if they're a troubled student, like how are they being perceived in that environment and what resources are being given to them at that point? Because that is what they carry with them to SCU. I hope that's clear is because what I'm trying to say is I hope that these students are being identified in the right way, especially if they do have learning disabilities or certain things that are going on um, and that they're getting the support that they need so that they could carry that over. But if they get here and have something that's undiagnosed, a learning disability, whatever that may be, they wouldn't necessarily reach out to our office as the first source um, of support, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. And I wonder really quickly, I mean, for K through 12, I mean, are there, I don't know if you all know the trends or just kind of the patterns, are there resources or does it just kind of depend upon the district that you're in, the place that you're in, the school system that you're in? Because um, knowing and, and hearing that is a little concerning because it's it's a lot a, a, a lot like a lot of other topics we talk about that if you don't talk about it when you're young, by the time you get to an older age, it's like, boop, that's it, right? Where you're kind of a quote unquote lost cause. But you know, how do you, how do we fix that or how do we help with that or, yeah. I'm, I'm not suggesting that it's a, a large problem. It's something that I've thought about. I, I can't speak to whether or not that is, you know, the, that's why we don't see the numbers, um, but it's something, it's just something to think about. So how would we address it? I, I, try, I'm, I hope that this, the people who are in those positions, those special education departments are able to identify students appropriately and recognize that. Um, I cannot speak to whether or not that's happened. I'm not in the K through 12 setting. So, um, yeah. No, I appreciate you sharing that, Kara, because as, as we all know, um, Father Brian, our president, has, um, has said that we are making strides to become an anti-racist institution. And so part of that process is us really reflecting and being critical about the systems and the information in front of us, not just accepting things as they are, but understand and question why are they the way that they are. So I appreciate your candid and honest responses there. Yeah, I think we also got to think about resources available to students in that sense as well, because a psychoeducational assessment, if it's not done while the student is in K-12, can cost thousands and thousands of dollars. So um, I don't want to put a number uh, on it, but I know that it could be upward to anywhere from 3000 to 5000 or even higher, depending on where you get it done. So it is pretty expensive for those that have learning disabilities. For um, a students that may have um, mental health disorders, they can work with um, their medical provider to get a referral to see a psychologist, but we have to keep in, uh, in mind that the students have insurance. How do they get that, um, get that um, diagnosis? For our students on campus, they could go to CAPS and um, see a counselor at CAPS and COPS is able to write um, accommodation letter for some diagnosis. Um, you will have to um, connect with COPS to figure out what they can provide um, a letter for and what they cannot. But um, yeah, there's a lot of thing at play. It really depends on the resources available and when, like Kara said, when the students were diagnosed. If it's outside of high school, they may have to um, pay for the assessment out of pocket. And that's a lot of money. 
And given that we are currently in an election awaiting to see what will happen, I think it's a good reminder for all of our listeners that, you know, when we talk about resources or lack thereof, that it's really contingent upon, you know, moments like these, right? Like who are making these decisions, where are resources going to or not going to, you know, who are in these positions of power to be able to allocate, reallocate, and just engage in the social justice work. I, I know that for us in OML, we're doing more than what we have usually done to be able to address DEI in this broad sense, that it's not always just about race or about gender or about orientation, but it's about all of these other points of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and that we need to amplify those stories and these narratives. So it's even just sitting here listening to this is like, I feel empowered to do something. I wanna <laughs> make sure that people are getting accommodations as soon as they can. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> a wonderful note for us to wrap up this dialogue. So Maude and Kara, again, thank you so much for joining us. For our listeners, if you need anything, definitely reach out to them, either virtually, via email, or cross our fingers whenever we're in person again, stop by their office in the lower level of Benson Memorial Center, Benson 1. If I forget, the, the, the first, they're the best. So <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you want to hear more about this topic from a bioethics perspective, definitely check out part two of this episode that should not be available wherever podcasts are available on Apple and Spotify. We definitely want to hear your feedback on this episode. In our About bio on Spotify and Apple, you can find a brief survey. This survey is also available on our link tree and our Instagram accounts at SCUOML or at RRC underscore SCU. In the survey, you can share topics with us that you would like us to discuss in future episodes. Word on the street is that you can also stop by the various virtual programs that OML and RSC will be hosting throughout the winter quarter. Make sure to follow us, OML and RSC, on social media and about for details of upcoming programs. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you for the next episode.